Hi, I'm Tyler Yules. Welcome to How the Grades Do It. Welcome back to, to another episode of How the Grades Do It. Super excited for our conversation. We have Amjad Abuka DJ, head of sales at Socket. Um, Amjad, appreciate you jumping on with us today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having yeah. me, Tyler. Absolutely, man. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to at Socket, and um, we'll kind of take the conversation from there. Yeah, totally. So as you mentioned, uh, I'm the head of sales at Socket. Uh, you know, right now we're a small sales team. Uh, we're growing at a pretty rapid clip. Um, so just taking a step back, telling you a little bit about what the company does. Um, and then I can give you an idea of kind of where we're at in our inflection point as a sales team. And then we can go from there. Perfect. Um, so Socket is a cybersecurity company. Um, you know, that's kind of like the umbrella of, I guess, you know, the, the, the terminology you would use to kind of like, um, you know, decide where we're placed in the market. Um, so what we focus on is we look at all of the open source code that companies are using and we scan it for any risks, essentially. So that's the that's the long story short is we look at all of the open source code that any application is running and we test it um, with some very comprehensive like methods to assess whether, you know, there's malicious uh, dependencies inside that open source code. If it's posing a risk for a potential like, you know, cyber attack. Uh, yeah. And our goal is to basically flag that information to the developers very early on in the process so that they know to not use that piece of uh, code, essentially, right? It's bad. It's bad code. You don't want to use it. And so that's what we do. Um, so, you know, we've launched uh, a couple of years ago. Um, the the primary team uh, were all open source maintainers. So a lot of engineers that were focused on, you know, being open source maintainers previously. And so uh, they have a lot of experience in that area. And then um, we grew the product, uh, kind of started to test it out, uh, you know, see it like, is this something that customers would actually be interested in? And then that's when yeah. I joined the team about a year and a half ago. Um, and my job was to come in and basically, you know, talk to customers, figure out like what what were they missing from their existing tools and then go and work with the engineering team to see if we can get something built that, that meets their needs. Um, and so kind of fast forward a year and a half, we we've done a, a, a what I like to think a pretty good job of it so far. Um, yeah. We secured our uh, series a round of funding a few months ago that we made the announcement. So we raised uh, $20 million from Andreessen Horowitz, which was very exciting. Uh, as I'm yeah. sure, you know, t- tier one VC firm, which was, which was incredible. Um, and so now we're just kind of using that that funding to, you know, hire more engineers so that we can uh, ship our features faster. And then we're also focusing on hiring a lot more support people to ensure that, like, you know, customer success is very high. Um, not really growing the sales team too much, to be honest. We've been able to do a lot with just our, our small team of about four people. Um, yeah. But we are, we are <laughs> trying to bring in, um, you know, people that understand the space and could be, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, like advocates for customers, not, not so much just, you know, cold call them and, uh, you know, uh, bother them with a bunch of stuff, but more so like help guide them almost like a consultative type of approach. And it's been working very well so far. I think our customers are very happy. So kind of a long winded answer, but hopefully that gives you an idea of what we're up to. No, I love that. Right. And I think so many companies out there, right. They get their first round of funding and they hire a ton of people that they didn't necessarily need and they try to grow too fast. So I love the lean machine that y'all are running right now. And, um, and it seems to be working for you guys. Correct. Um, I think, especially in the security space, there's been a lot of snake oil. And so, yeah. um, you know, a lot of products that uh, claim to do a lot and then they can't actually do it. And um, we are not one of those companies. We do not want to ever be one of those companies. And so, you know, we, we don't put a ton of money into marketing. You know, you don't see us with everywhere you go, banners and, you know, all this kind of stuff to like get you to be like, part of this socket cult it's more like yeah. hey take take our product for for a test drive right test it out compare it to other tools and we're confident that our analysis you know we'll show you with our with our analysis that like we're finding issues and, and protecting you you know better than other tools can and so that's kind of been our our mo yeah i love that man i'm, I'm curious like what got you into sales like to start with, like, did you always know you were going to be a salesperson or, you know, is that something that you, someone saw the potential in you and they said, Hey man, you got to be a salesperson. Uh, 
I don't know. You know, it's a weird one. So like, I'll, I'll tell you a quick backstory. So like, I'll tell you how I got into it. And then, then you can, you can decide for whether you, you think I was meant for it or not, but I, I actually, <laughs> I, I never like woke up one day and said, Oh, I'm, I want to be a salesperson. So, um, I, so growing up, I, uh, you know, I was, I was, a long, like I was a, I was a track and field athlete. I took like athletics very seriously. I actually ended yeah. up getting recruited to go run at UCLA. So I, I competed in, uh, division one track and field and cross country at UCLA. Um, and I was very much focused on that. Like I, I had aspirations of being in the Olympics and being a professional runner and stuff. So, oh, yeah. you know, I, I was an okay student, uh, you know, I was an okay student. I, I wasn't great. I like, I, I was decent at test taking. That was kind of like my specialty. I was, I was like, okay, I was pretty good at the SAT and things like that. But, um, I didn't put the effort into like doing all the homework and all that kind of stuff, right. That, that you would, that you would typically see with like a typical UCLA student. And so mm-hmm. I think it's pretty common for, for elite syndrome. So, um, so I went to UCLA and then, you know, was really focused on that for like two, three years. And then kind of like around end of junior year, going into senior year, I started to think like, okay, what the heck am I going to do with like my career after this? Once I started yep. to realize that like, there's not a lot of money in long distance running. Um, it's not <laughs> at all any other sport. I mean, unless you're winning one of these major marathons, like the Boston Marathon or the New York Marathon sure. or something, or you're you know you're competing in the Olympics and you're sponsored by Nike or, or you know one of the big brands, you're not going to make jack squat right in running. I mean, it's just the bottom line is you just don't make any money. So yeah, um, I was like, okay, this isn't a great career path. Although I loved it, you know, and I was passionate about it, I, I started to kind of put some feelers out there, and so. I started to think like, what are my skills? Like, what am I actually good at? And what I always came back to was that whenever there was a class assignment where it was like a group project or something to that effect, um, I noticed something that kept happening over and over again, where the students that I thought were the smartest students in the class, they loved to do all of the, the preparation. They loved to build the decks. They loved to build the, 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 you know, all of the information and the contents and you know, go take references from the books that we had assigned from the class. And they love to do all of that. And they did an amazing job of it. But then when it came time to actually present it to the class, they said, oh, I don't want to present it. You can present it. I don't want to present it. Like, I can't, I can't be in the front of the class. And there was yeah. this huge fear of like public speaking, right? Which we know is like the number one fear that people have. And for some reason, I didn't ever have that fear. Like, just personally, I, I was like, okay, well, this is my way I can help contribute to the group. Like, I'm happy to present it. And so... I would just do one or two dry runs with the the smarter students. And I would say like, am I saying everything correctly? And what was funny is like, I learned really well that way. Like that's how I started to learn was like being forced to, to be in a kind of a high pressure situation. Yeah. And so, you know, I would, and I would present and it just turned out that I was pretty good at it. Like I, I liked it. We tended to do pretty well. And so I thought like, okay, getting into a field like sales where there's a lot of like presenting and like being in awkward, tough, difficult situations might be a good place to start. And yeah. so when I graduated college, I moved up to the Bay Area just because I, you know, Bay Area, meaning like San Francisco, that kind of yeah. coastal area in, in Northern California. And um, I just thought like, hey, I want to I want to be, you know, I want to be in, in tech because it just, you know, tech is, is growing. It's, it's kind of the spot to be. You hear all the stories of how great it is. And so I moved up there. I had a couple thousand bucks to my name and I literally found a my best friend from college. We, we found a shed in the back of this house in Palo Alto that was for rent. And it was literally <laughs> 600 bucks each, $600 each to rent a 250 square foot shed. And uh, we had no, you know, we didn't go to any career fairs. We didn't have any jobs lined up and we just went for it, right? We, we moved up. We had like uh, our clothes shuffled in the corner of the room. We were literally eating like beans and like, you know, rice and things like this. Um, and there was no bathroom or no kitchen as a part of this shed, as you can imagine. And so we would literally yeah. wake up at 6 a.m. every day and we would go to the 24-hour gym fitness, 24-hour fitness, and we would shower, you know, use the restroom, like work out, and then we would go to Starbucks the rest of the day and we would apply for jobs. And we started, you know, sending LinkedIn messages to recruiters. We started applying online. The, I mean, the it was grind, like I love it. Back. Yeah, just grinding. I mean, that's really what it was, right? Just drinking coffee and just making it happen. And then I got very lucky to finally hear back from uh, a friend of mine that was working at Oracle, put me in touch with a recruiter at Oracle, and I got I got an entry-level job at, at Oracle. I mean, it was bare bones, right? I mean, as low paying as you could possibly get. 
And yeah. when I got, I took the job, I just needed to make some money. And when I got in there, I mean, it wasn't even four to six weeks on the job. And I knew that I was going to be in sales, like, you know, like kind of software sales for the rest of my career. I just knew it sure. with a hundred percent certainty. I loved it. I saw the career progression potential and um, that's how I got started. And I've been in this, doing this for about a decade now. So <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's the story. I know it's, it's, it's not super typical, but um, I think that's just kind of how it worked out for me. I love that though. Then, and the story around, like, I think you really just said, Hey, I'm going to take my own destiny into my own hands. And, um, and, and do what I, what I think is the best for me. Right. And you found where you fit into your, into a role and right. You didn't make a role fit in, into what you, what the company was looking for. Right. You went out and said, Hey, I'm going to be myself and I'm going to hunt, hunt a role down that I want. And here's what I think I can make out of myself. And you did it. I love that. Were there any like challenges or turning points that really shaped your approach to sales? Um, you know, I would say like, for, uh, like, I think, you know, people get into sales for all, all kinds of reasons. I think like the yeah. obvious one is people want to make a lot of money. Like that's sure. kind of like the, the stigma with it is like, oh, you know, sales people, all they care about is money. And like, I think like, yes, there's that component of it. It's like, you want to build a career for yourself and, and uh, especially right out of college, it's like, you know, that you have a little bit of student loans, you have, you know, you have all this mm -hmm. stuff. So you want to make as much money as you can quickly just to get out of the red zone and just be like safe and be like, okay, I've got some money. I can like actually think about what I want to do. Absolutely. So that was, like part, that was like part of the driver for me, but also um, <laughs> it was, it was, it's actually fun, right? Like I, I actually like this job now to go as far as saying like, you know, all these silly quotes you hear about, you know, love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life. Like I'm not going to go that far. Like there's definitely certain shit in this job that is like extremely stressful and like, you just don't want to do it. And that's always going to be sure. the case. But like, I I generally, for the most part, I would say 80% of the time, I actually love the activities of this job. Like I love, you know, being able to like, explain to a customer, you know, what's the, here's your problem. Okay, am I understanding this correctly? Okay, here's how we can solve it. And then like, actually working with them on evaluating our product in the right way. Like, okay, so here's how typical customers evaluate. It's like, outlining that for them, scheduling those meetings, like actually taking those meetings, having the, you know, uh, very strategic conversations with the executives at the company about how is this going to meet their goals? And then like creating those relationships and then like doing business with them, not just initially, but for the long term. And then like, if you go and sell a different product, trying to grow your network and go back to those existing customers that you worked with in the past. And, you know, that kind of a thing, like, I actually really do love that, that part of the job. So I think for me, like starting at Oracle was amazing because Oracle is like the kind of a place where you go where you see like some of the worst salespeople you've ever seen in your life, but <laughs> because they hire they hire so many people, but it's also where yeah. you go to see best salespeople that you've ever seen, and they have sure. such good sales training at that company. Like they put you through the ringer. I mean, they tell they teach you all the different sales methodologies. They teach you how to present. I mean, there's like endless amount of potential in terms of becoming like a a good seller. There's so much material, so many courses, so many classes things that you can do. And so for me, when I got in there, I just said, I'm going to go and make connections with the, the top sellers in the company. And so what I did is yeah. I, I just, I just asked if I could join their meetings just to see how they do it. And like, what I found is like, you see these, 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 you know, kids, so to speak, right? Like mid twenties, late twenties, I mean, making extraordinary amounts, right? On their W2s. And it's just like seeing what they're doing and like realizing that, okay, I've been on their last 10 calls. Like it's doable. It's all doable. You don't need to have this yeah. genius, you know, mind, right. Necessarily. I mean, obviously there are some skills that like, you know, if, if you have those, you're, you're probably better equipped to be successful. But for the most part, there's nothing about the role where it's like, I'm behind, like nobody did 10 years of, 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 you know, college focused on selling. I mean, there is really is no career yeah. path. But I mean, I know people say business and things like that. But the reality is there's no like you don't go to college for sales. And so um, a lot of it is like, you know, common sense and piecing things together and work ethic and, and things like that. And so, um, you know, I thought like it was it was just a good field for me because, you know, like with engineering, for example, if we take like the opposite side of things, like if you can't program like, yes, there's boot camps and things like this. 
but the reality is you're, you're, you're kind of constrained. Like you're, you're, until you learn those skills, you're not going to like be a programmer at a company. Um, and sales, there was no real blockers in the way. It was kind of like, how bad do you want it? And so that, yeah. that's why I chose, that was very eye opening, And that's kind of why I chose that path. Yeah, no, I love that. And that totally makes sense. <clears throat> you know, you talked about like seeing different um, people at Oracle and like, hey, there were some good ones. There was really bad ones. Like, did you find any commonality between the really the ones that are really good? And have you been able to then translate that into like hiring at Socket? Like, what do you then look for to see like, hey, all right, maybe I found some commonality to say, hey, this makes a really good salesperson or um, or leader, right? Like, how have you then been able to translate that in all the companies you've been at? Yeah, so I would say that in, in especially in Socket's case, where we're uh, a small company, we're trying to disrupt a kind of an old stodgy space where like right. traditionally the way that open source scanning was has been done is much different than the approach we're taking, where we're much more focused on like detecting malware and real security threats. Like I think yeah. something, you know, that um, because we have this this big goal and like because we're starting at the very beginning. There's there's two types of salespeople really that I that I seem to encounter whenever I do interviews. There's the type of salesperson that comes in and they say, or they you know they look at the situation and they they say, okay, I know how to run an introduction call with a potential customer with a prospect, and then oh yeah, um, they're asking for this. Okay, so then I'm just going to go to the website and find our FAQ page and send them the link, right? And it's like they're very process oriented, yeah, and that's fine, but then they're the type of person, but then there's the other type of person where they come into an environment where none of that is there for them. And that's not at all like a blocker to them. They are the kind of person that says, okay, I had a very good conversation with this client. They're a perfect fit for what we do. I am going to win this deal. And I don't yeah. care if the documentation isn't created for me. I'm going to figure out how to get something in place to make sure that they have the information they want. And so it's very uh, important for me, like as a sale, sell, selling leader, to make sure that like I'm hiring people that are resourceful and people that can, um, you know, figure things out on their own. And they, they want to take on this this challenge and this journey because it really is hard. I mean, like, you know, if you take my previous role, for example, I was at Google Cloud selling like uh, infrastructure to really large companies. Everything was done for you. I mean, if they sent us yeah. a security questionnaire and they said, hey, fill out this 200 question security questionnaire, I would never do it. I would take it and I would send it to a team. We had a team that did it. Two days later, I would get it back. I would just copy, you know, attach it and I would send it to them. Hey, here's, it's done. Right. Well, what do you do at a startup when there's only 15 people? And like, you have to come mm -hmm. up with this. I have to scan the docs. You have to, you have to start getting, you have to get more creative. You have to be more resourceful. You have to like be more hands-on and like figure out, okay, well, I have these 20 documents with all of the information in it. I don't have the time to read all these documents. So I'm going to use ChatGPT to summarize the documents. And then I'm there going you to go. respond to these questions. <clears throat> think like, you know, that, that, that think to that, to that level. And also um, just people that like, they, they're not going to accept loss, right? It's like, this is my quota. I'm going to hit it. I've always hit my yeah. quota. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And so like really making sure that I structure an interview process around like, trying to identify what type of people, you know, are applying to this job is by far the hardest thing because everybody says they hit their quote on their resume. I mean, I've looked at a hundred resumes. <laughs> Nobody oh, says they're a shitty salesperson. No, never. I mean, it's like, it's kind, of, it's kind of a joke, but the truth is like, I've never once in my life met a salesperson that on their resume says that they didn't hit 148% of their Q1 number and 210% of their Q2 number. So it's like, if you just look at resumes, you're going to just hire the first person you get because on paper, they look like a rock star. But sure. unless you actually put them through the evaluation process and like have them present to you as if you're a customer and see how they handle it, then you're never going to really know, like, are they are they equipped to take on this type of a role? I don't know if yeah. that makes sense. No, it absolutely does, right? Like, and I think <clears throat> the hard part, right? And you're, thinking, you're hitting the nail on the head, right? It's like finding the people that have those qualities and being able to vet those out really early on in the process to make sure that they um, obviously have the skills that you need to be able to obviously, right. Like be super resourceful in that sense. And, um, and then push you the hard times. I think that's always the hard, hard part when, when hiring, you know, right. you guys sell to a lot of different industries and um, like, does the approach ever change? Um, yes and no. I mean, 
the 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 good news is that um, today, if you look at just like with the data, like eighty to ninety percent of all applications are made up of open source today. So the good news is everybody's using open source. Everybody knows how relevant it is. So yep. when and everyone's pretty much aware of like the risks that you know come along with using open source. And so um, from that standpoint, it's nice. There's not a huge education that needs to be done, at least in terms of like the risk and like the potential risk of using open source. So that's great. Um, now the, the pitch and the, the process and how we evaluate them could change slightly based on their industry. So, you know, for example, um, if I'm talking to like a, a financial institution, right? Yeah. For them, a breach is detrimental for obvious reasons. Like if somebody gets hacked and client information gets exposed or, you know, financials get lost and money gets stolen, right? That's a very clear ROI for why they need a tool like us. If we could prove to them that we can reduce that from happening or prevent it altogether, it's a very clear ROI. And then they, they can make the, the, you know, the, the justification internally to go and get the budget for our tool. Um, yeah. In other cases where they're not in the financial space or they're not like in the health tech space where it's like very sensitive, you know, information about clients and things, you have to change the conversation a bit in terms of how, well, how much time are you spending today reviewing the risks inside the open source? Oh, okay. You spend, you know, 10 hours a week and then you have three or four people doing that. Okay. That's 40 hours a week. Okay. Well, how much money are you paying your average security engineer? Oh, you're paying them on average, what, 200,000 salary. So you can start to quantify to them. Okay. You're spending about $20,000 a week in time. Right. And so then you have to show them how your product can actually reduce the time that they take. And yeah. you only surface the critical issues to them. So then they know that this tool is going to help us surface the critical issues. So we can actually do the same work with half the staff. So then they can plan for the future. Okay, well, we wanted to hire 10 security engineers this year. We buy these tools. We might only be able to need to hire six, right? And so it becomes yeah. a different exercise for quantifying the value. Um, but, you know, the um, so it changes a little bit. That's why it's kind of a yes and no. No, that totally makes sense. Like. Are there anything that you have found um, to, to be more effective right now? Because, I, you know, a lot of companies are struggling out there to really get in front of that, just to even have that initial conversation. Um, effective in terms of, like, getting meetings? Yeah, getting meetings or outreach or, like, even when you have the meeting, right? Like, being able to build trust really quickly, I think that's kind of, um, that's essential, right, in today's market. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, I've had, I mean, to your point, I've had two or three customers just in the last week tell me that um, now more than ever, every dollar yeah. they spend is getting scrutinized and, um, you know, they're either preparing to go public and they have to, you know, ensure that, uh, you know, that their, their, their cash flow is, is in, in order or, you know, that uh, they're not procuring tools that aren't absolutely necessary. And so there is definitely more roadblocks, especially with the economic situation we're in right now, where like right. kind of either, I don't know, how do you want to describe it? We're in a recession or we're coming out of one or whatever, whatever the the, the nomenclature is. Um, and so like, and we kind of have it even exponentially harder in our space because like I was mentioning earlier in, in the in the interview, um, the uh, there's been a lot of snake oil in the cybersecurity space. A lot of tools have been claiming to do this or that. And I think sure. like security folks are kind of, you know, wary of bringing in new tools. And so in our case, like what we always do is we just say the proof's in the pudding, just test it, yeah. right? Evaluate. And so what we've done that's had a lot of success is we've actually been pushing customers to spending two weeks to, you know, do a proof of concept and actually evaluate us thoroughly. And so during that evaluation, what they can do is they can just say, okay, let's take some example malware packages, right? And let's test them. Let's see, you know, does your existing tooling today, would they have caught these issues? Okay, they wouldn't. Okay, now let's test socket. Would they have caught these existing issues? Oh, they would have. Yeah. Right. And so we we've actually focused a lot of energy and resources on refining our our proof of concept process because um, we're very confident that like the analysis we're doing is unique and like we are very well equipped to actually protect customers from these potential attacks. And so yeah, uh, that's kind of been our biggest differentiator is like pushing people to that evaluation. No, that totally makes sense. <clears throat> and once they do the evaluation, right, then it's like, hey, it's a straight value up front, right? It's like, hey, this is the way that we could have impacted your business. And the and then I guess it gives you a use case for ROI really quickly. 
Correct. Love that. Love that. Help me understand a little bit about how you're building really strong relationships um, that lead to long-term partnerships and, and hopefully opportunities in the future. Yeah, I think um, like the way I would answer that the best would be it, it all comes down to setting the proper expectations. Um, yeah. You know, I think like uh, if, if you were to take Socket today and you were to compare us to some other tools that have been around for 10 years, right? Seven, 10 years. Yeah. Like we may not have all the belts and whistles that those other tools have today. Um, and so like it, when you, when you actually start off these partnerships with customers, then you, they need to be aware that like what they're getting today versus what they're going to get next quarter versus what they're going to get maybe over the course of the next year. Um, yeah. Because I think if you, if we go into an evaluation and we try to do like an apples to apples comparison, with their existing tool set. And it could be a company that they've been using for five years. It could be a 10 year old company. Yeah. We may not have all of the integration points or all of the features and stuff that they, that those tools have today. Um, and so, you know, in that case, we're not going to win, right? If that's what the evaluation is based on, if it's like, Oh, well, does your system export this or it, it you know, integrate here, that's the yeah. kind of thing that's rocket science. That's the kind of thing that like that will come with time. It just takes engineering time to build out those different features. And so what we try to do when we make our initial partnerships is we try to understand, like, let's focus on the core problem here. Like, what is the challenge with the tools that you have today? And what we find from that is, you know, customers might say, well, the existing tooling we have in place today, you know, they send, our, they send us alerts for potential security risks, but they're not very actionable. They're noisy. We look at them and 95% of the alerts we get, they're noisy. They're not true security risks. And so like after we ask these layer of discovery questions, what we come down to is that the core functionality of this tool is that they're, they're getting so much noise on potential issues. And then when they look at them, they're not real issues that like yeah. they would have a tool that actually tells them only about real issues. And so that's an area we excel our actual analysis, the analysis we do, and we're able to tell them, hey, these are real issues. From there, we say, okay, now that you know when you get an alert from Socket, it's going to actually be a true security risk. What sure. would be nice for you to have? Like, what are you going to do with that information? Walk me through what do you do today when you receive an alert? Then they tell you, well, you know, I needed to go into the dashboard. I have to triage it. I have to review it. And then, oh, we have to, for compliance reasons, get that data pushed off to this other system. And then we can start to build out a roadmap with them, right? We can talk to our roadmap and we can say, okay, it sounds good. So today we'll get you that analysis. It might be yeah. a little bit of a manual process, but it sounds like it would save you guys a lot of time if we can get that data pushed into whatever XYZ system or XYZ tool. And so that way, when they start the partnership off, they know like what they're getting day one and there's no surprises, right? We're not overselling the product. We're not overselling yeah. the features. Um, and then what ends up happening is it, it actually leads to a lot longer of a um, successful partnership because, you know, we, we, again, we didn't, we didn't hit them with every marketing fluff out there and we, we gave them the truth up front. Um, and so when they make that justification, they can kind of, you know, we, we can undersell it and over deliver. Yeah. I mean, I think that's always the key, right? Is like <clears throat> not over promising, especially right. Like as you're going against competitors that may have other features or benefits, that um, your company doesn't necessarily have, right? It's like setting really clear expectations, but not overselling yourself to the point where if you miss a deadline or you don't release a, a feature update in the next quarter, right? Like that you didn't oversell the product in the sense and um, making sure that it's always a good fit. So I love that. Exactly. hundred percent. Yeah. What, what kind of um, advice are you giving your team as they meet with people and like trying to take them through like a really meaningful discovery? Cause it sounds like, right? Like, from um from our conversation right like that's super important to you and making sure that um sockets like a, a really great fit right you don't want to sell this you're not you're not just trying to push this out this to everyone and and you're trying to make sure that it's the, the best product fit and so like how what kind of direction are you giving the team to make sure like that's always happening yeah great question so i would say um something i always kind of reinforce to my team is try to figure out what's the question behind the question um and mm. so a lot of times what happens is, you know, prospects or customers will hit you with, hey, like, uh, you know, you know, d does your system integrate with this tool, XYZ, right? And then, like, 
the answer might be no. Like, no, we the don't. The answer have to might know. be no, but the answer, the next question should maybe be, hey, why is this important that it connects Correct. to this other tool? Correct. Okay, so my understanding is you want to get this data into this system. What's yep. the purpose of that? Are you what? What is your goal? Oh, and then they might tell you, well, I just need to have an easy way to get a list of the current risk so that I can report it up to my boss. Oh, okay, great. So you know what? We don't have that integration today, but what you can do is you can export this data using this capability. And then, you know, you can you can see in the CSV, right, the list of issues and you can prioritize them by critical down to low. And so, like, um, just making sure, like, there, it's layering discovery, right, I think is like the terminology right. they use. It's like, not just, hey, so tell me about your timeline. But it's like, okay, so you say Q1. Why is it Q1 and not Q4? Like, right. is it, is it uh, oh, is it because you're working on other projects or is it because... Maybe if that's the case where it's like they just don't have the bandwidth, then okay. I mean, what are you going to do, right? If they tell you they just don't have the time. But it might be what you find out is that they're used to evaluating other tools in the past that took three months to six months to evaluate. And in our case, it might only take two weeks to evaluate our solution. Like, Understand why are you saying it's six months out to make your decision? They might tell you, oh, well, because, you know, I know that you have to get all these permissions accepted. We have to get all this stuff. And then you can just tell them, hey, wait a minute. Like actually in our case, you know, we don't need all of those, you know, permissions. We're only looking at the open source code. And so, you know, you you might find out by doing this discovery and educating them that they can actually bring that timeline up a lot more. And so um, I think just in general, having that type of a mindset when you when you do sales is just not really a good way to like be more clear about what the customer's goals are so that you can like give them the success that they want to see. But you also end up, what you do is you end up shortening your your sales cycle a lot, you know, to a lot closer of a timeline, like a shorter timeline, which yeah. again, at startup, that's what it's, that's the name of the game is like prioritization, prioritization, prioritization. So like, you know, uh, we don't have all the bandwidth, you know, we don't have a thousand salespeople. So it's like, where do we focus our time? And so if you do the proper discovery up front, you'll know where you actually have feasible opportunities to win deals. And which ones are the, the fastest moving potential? So then you know where to prioritize your time so that we can hit the company goal. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, you hit really like a super relevant topic that you just hit on, right? And I think that a lot of people overlook it, right? Is making sure that you, you're asking the right questions. But a lot of times that surface level answer is an answer you need and it isn't even the correct one, right? And so it's a little bit um digging a little bit deeper, be curious, seek to understand. And you'll get to where you want to be eventually. And um, I think it's just, right, like making sure you ask the right questions and lead your prospect in the way um, that's going to be that's going to be the most helpful for them. So I love that. Correct. Yeah. And it sounds obvious, well, right? But it's like yeah, when you're on. It does. When, when you're in it the does prep, sound obvious. And, 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 and like, again, even when you're interviewing people, like they might. Yeah. They might tell you, oh, yeah, I'm great at discovery, you know, and then they'll hit you with a, an acronym, BANT. Make sure you have budget, authority, need, timeline. Okay, you memorized a phrase. Great. Let's put this into practice. Let's put <laughs> yeah. this into practice. I'm a hypothetical customer. Like, let's meet in two days, and I want you to come back to that meeting, and I want you to assume that I've agreed to do a POC. Now, walk me through how are you going to kick off that POC, a 30-minute mock presentation. And I try yeah. to purposely leave it very vague. I try to say, you know, here's the basics. Do some research on our website. I'm not going to grade you on, you know, how much you know every single fact about our product because I know that takes time. You know, it could take a few months to a, a few quarters in the seat to actually learn the terminology and all that. But sure. from your experience and how you've ran other evaluations, you know, I'm an interested customer, but like, let's pretend this is a kickoff of a POC. Like, how are you going to run that? Like, walk me through like a mutual evaluation plan. How do you present those? You know, how do you get meetings scheduled? Like, propose some next steps. Like, do some additional discovery. Like, ask me the right questions. And then until I see that meeting, right, until I see how they can run that meeting, I, can, I can't get a really good sense of whether they're going to be successful in this role or not. Um, yeah. And we want people to be successful. I mean, we want, like, nothing would make me happier than people blowing their quote out of the park, right? Because that means the company's doing well. So, like, Absolutely. Um, it's not those people aren't good sellers. It's just that they might not be the right seller for this stage of our company, right? And so it just it's a different skill set, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And like, I'd love to hear some advice from you, like of who you think would be, you know, as, cause you work for kind of like some, um, some really big companies out there, but like obviously now working on this startup and, and, um, 
and getting it to blow up. Like, when does someone know if they should, hey, like, should I stay with a big company or I should really start with that, go to that startup kind of vibe and um, and try to build something? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a million dollar question. Um, <laughs> I I talked to one of our investors recently and tried to get his advice on on this topic actually as well. Yeah. Um, in terms of just like standard, you know, like at a high level, what kind, what types of profiles should I be looking for? And like kind of the direction I was pointed in was like, you know, um, what you really want to see. I mean, and this is again, no, no one shoe fits all because even myself, I didn't have this, this type of a background before I joined Socket. But in an ideal circumstance, what, what we would look for would be somebody that's kind of moved up the ranks in a small to medium sized business. So yeah. not, not like an Oracle or a Google, right. Uh, or a Microsoft, but more so maybe like, you know, they joined two, three years into like the snowflake journey or the Okta journey. And, you know, they started off as an SDR. So they, you know, that they have core strong prospecting fundamental, you know, fundamentals in place. And then they moved into an AE role, maybe small business. So they got their feet wet. They started closing some deals. They got promoted to mid market. They started to work on larger deals and then eventually up to the enterprise level. And then, um, you know, they've been there maybe four or five years, right? They have pretty, so what you can basically defer from that or infer from that is you can say, okay, they've clearly had success or they wouldn't have been promoted this many times. So that's, that's good. That's a validation point, right? Um, number two is, you know, that they've got pretty good training because you know, the background on those companies and you know that they do good training on salespeople, right? That's a pretty easy statistic to find out. You could just talk to people in your network. And so now you know that they have the basic, you know, polished polishing skills needed to actually run presentations, right? It's not just some random startup that wasn't successful. At least you know that they were successful, which means they probably had pretty good sales practices in place for training. Um, yeah. And then like somebody that now has this information and says, okay, I know what it takes now to scale a company. And so now I want to start off early because I want, you know, I want to benefit from the equity component, right? I want to be early on in a startup when they're not valued mm-hmm. a lot because I know that you know, 10x or 100x their valuation. And so now that they've done it once, it's like, okay, I'm ready to do it again. And this time I, I'm not coming in as a young kid out of college, but I actually have maybe five, seven, eight years of experience doing it. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's like the typical profile, you know, I would look for. Um, I get worried sometimes personally, and this is kind of like a, a non-popular, uh, like if you were to ask me, like, what's a, um, what's your you know, unpopular what's non-popular opinion? Yeah. And yeah, for me, it's, you know, a lot of times people think that like job hopping is really bad, like two years here, one year here, three years here, two years here, whatever. Um, and they're like, yeah, you should look for people that are loyal, been at the same company for 10 years. And I actually sometimes would argue the diff- the opposite because what happens is when you get some money that's been at a company for 10 years, it's literally all they know. They yeah. know how to run a deal in their exact process. So if you go and get a top seller at Google, they're probably, you know, made a lot of money and they probably won some big deals. That's wonderful. I'm not saying they're a bad salesperson. They're obviously a great salesperson. But um, you go bring them into an environment like Socket where, you know, everything is is changing. Our roadmaps change, you know, like things things yeah. are flying. Things are happening so fast. Like we don't have all the documentation and the material in place. Like they're going to be very uncomfortable with that change. Now, Go and compare that to somebody that's been at three, four startups, maybe a year here, two years here, three years here. Now, obviously, there's some yellow flags with the jumping. You need to understand why did they jump? What was the true right. reason behind? It. But once, let's say, you've deciphered that out and it's you know it's it's an acceptable risk to you. You think it's it, it all checks out. That person, in my opinion, is much more equipped to be at a socket than someone that's been at one company for ten years. Why? Because from personal experience, every time I, um would make a jump to a new company in order to get that job you have to um you have to uh like explain all the things that you're going to accomplish you have to sell yourself you have to say here's what i'm going to do in my first 30 60 90 days and then what happens when you get the job well now you got to back it up right you got to do it and so what happens is you learn by doing that one two three times you learn how to ramp up quickly you learn how to digest information fast and you also learn how to not wait until you memorize everything perfectly to start working. Like after you talk up a big game, you have to back it up. So day one, you have to start producing. You have to start getting meetings and you start to learn on the job, right? As the deals, as the deals progress. And so um, 
that to me, it's a balance, right? I yeah. want to see just enough loyalty. You want to make sure that there's like legitimate reasons why they, they jumped versus, you know, um, cause you don't want someone just jumping every time for a 10% increase, 10% increase. Right. You know, that means you're just going to be a means to an end for them. Um, and you're going to spend all this time and investment into training them and then they're going to be gone. Right. Right. When things start to ramp, which is not what you want. Um, but at the same time, you don't want somebody that's been there forever. So I don't know if that answers your question. It's, it's, I wish I had an easy, uh, I wish there was a, just a very clear profile. It would make yeah. my life a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> I think that'd make everyone's life a lot easier. Right. But, um, yeah, salespeople are really good at, at selling themselves. And so I think that's one of the hard parts that we have to do as, as leaders, right. Is like, is sifting through the, um, the ones that maybe not the best fit and find the ones that are the perfect fit. Yep, exactly. Man, um, any any books or resources that have greatly influenced your approach? Um, yeah, I mean, let me see. I have a list here of my favorite books. So, um, I mean, from a, just a sales standpoint, like if you want to the, – the, one of the best books, in my opinion, is The Challenger Sale. I don't know if you've heard okay. of that one. Yep, yep. Yeah, so The Challenger Sale is really cool because what it does is it breaks down the different sales profiles – that you find in a typical company. So just to give you a little bit of context, you have like the lone wolf, right? The the person mm-hmm. that says, you know, hey, this is my quota. I'm gonna do me. I'm gonna I'm gonna go get my number, and I'm not gonna pay a lot of attention to rules and protocols. I'm gonna break the rules, but I'm just gonna do whatever I have to do to hit the number. And sure. there's that type of a profile, right? Then there's like the uh, relationship uh, builder, right? The person that you know, thinks that, you know, it's all about your network and, oh, they're going to go to every networking event and they're going to try to, you know, build connections. And then one day that connection is going to make a big intro for them. And that intro is going to lead to a seven figure deal. And there's like that type of mindset. Then there's the challenger mindset. There's a few others that I'm missing too, but then there's the challenger. And the challenger is the person that isn't afraid to challenge the customer on their thoughts. So when the customer says, hey, this is how I want to do it not just being a yes man and saying, okay, sure. Sounds good. I'll go build that evaluation. It's the person that says, well, wait a minute, like kind of going back to what we said, like, what's the question behind the question? Well, wait a minute. Why have you thought about doing it this way? Cause this is what we've seen three other customers recently do that are in your space. In fact, one yeah. of them I'll tell you a story. One of them went through this exact process. This is the inflection point they were at. This is when they knew they needed to use this tool to help them out. And so that type of a person, basically what the book talks about, is it shows you all the statistics <clears throat> of how each of those folks feed in a startup environment. And the challenger seller always comes out on top in terms of being the most successful. And so I think that book um, is a very, very, very good place. If you really want to do software sales and you want, like, this is something you want to do, you want to get into becoming a really good enterprise sales rep, you have to yeah. read that book. It really teaches you about, like, the the core fundamental approaches and how they compare. Um, and so like, you know, to be completely honest with you, I kind of fit into that lone wolf category for a lot of my career. I was very much so like, I'm just going to do whatever it takes because selling is a competition and I'm just going to do better than the next guy or girl sitting next to me. Sure. And like, not to say that person's bad to have at the company. They, those folks actually typically end up hitting their quota. And so, you know, there is the right time for them. But if you really want to move into sales leadership, you have to adopt the challenger sale methodology because it's more scalable in the long term. You know, it helps out the entire organization. It leads to more successful customers post sales, too, which is something that I have to care a lot about right now. So when I was an individual contributor, I didn't worry about necessarily what happened after the deal was signed. That wasn't my job. I had there was a customer success team. There was a support team. They would take care of it. But right now at Socket building the entire go-to-market structure. And so it doesn't do me any justice to go and get someone to sign a contract and then next year they they don't renew. It actually kills me because we spent so much time supporting them, doing all the stuff, and then we didn't get the revenue later on, right? And so um, like having that challenger methodology allows you to set up deals more successfully for post-sales too. Um, So I would say that book is really good. And then just to kind of bring it full circle, um, there's another book that I would recommend just from a personal mindset, um, that might be interesting to your audience since, you know, you are targeting a lot of sales folks and people that are interested in sales. So 
So right. probably they're going to be really interested in like personal finance and, and things to that effect too. So a book that I would recommend is it's called The Richest Man in Babylon. I don't know if you've okay. ever heard that book. I have but, not. So the, <laughs> the Richest Man in Babylon, I would highly recommend reading it. It's just, or I just do the audio book. You can go to YouTube and just search the audio book, Richest Man in Babylon, and you can listen to it in a couple of hours. It's very quick. It's an it's a 100-page book. Okay. And basically what what the book does is it's different chapters and every chapter is a different story. And each story gives you like um, kind of like a fun way of explaining a, a financial principle that is actually really important uh, in your life. So just to give you an example of one, uh, you know, the first chapter starts off with uh, this guy named Bansir. He's a chariot maker. So it takes place in ancient Babylon. And this guy literally makes chariots right? That, you know, where horses pull the, the people in the chariot. Sure. And every year he would spend the entire year building a chariot. And then he would take it to the big marketplace in the, in the capital and he would sell the chariot for a hundred gold coins. And so um, he would sell the chariot, he would make the hundred gold coins. And then what would he do? He would go back home and he would basically keep those hundred gold coins under his bed and he would ration them out throughout the next year until he had built the next chariot. So he would use some yeah. for clothing, some for food, some to fix his home, whatever. Right. And then uh, he would just rinse, wash, repeat and do it again. So there was no, he could never quit. Right. He could never stop working because he only had enough for that next year. And so he yeah. had to build another chariot and sell it again. And then one day he gets to the capital to sell one of his chariots and he sees this wealthy guy, right. Riding around on a chariot. And every year yeah. he sees this guy riding a new chariot. And he goes, WTF, like, how does this guy afford a new chariot every year? So finally yeah. he says, you know what? I'm sick of this. I'm going to, I'm going to go talk to him. So he goes and talks to this guy and Arcad and he says, Hey, uh, you know, how are you doing this? Like, how are you able to just buy all these luxurious things and like not run out of money? And so the guy starts to walk him through the, the seven principles of, of money. And basically every chapter is one of those principles. So he talks about, well, you make the biggest mistake. You go home and you take those hundred coins and you you storm away. What you should be doing is you should be taking 20 of them right away and hiring two people to help you build more chariots. So then at the end of the year, you don't just have one. You could build two, right? Yeah. And you sell two at the year. And so it basically teaches you how to invest and then how to buy insurance and how to do all these different things. And it sounds silly. A lot of it is very common, but it kind of puts it into a, a real life situation. And like reading that book early on, it gives you a good idea of what to do with your money when you actually do make some. So um, yeah, yeah, I, I like that book. I mean, I, I recommend that to everyone. It's a fun book. Like I said, it takes a couple hours to listen to the audio book. Um, so yeah. I love that. No, I love that. And I think that that'll be super impactful for people and <clears throat> um, go to Amazon and check that out. I think a lot of people will probably benefit from that one. Well, man, yep. I got one last question for you. When you, yep. when you live this life, how do you want people to remember you? Wow. That's a deep question. <laughs> that's, that's, I say, I say uh, the best for I the like, best. Yeah. Yeah. I like that one. Uh, you know, I, I honestly think that like, I, I want people to remember me as, as somebody that, um, like, yes, you know, had their own success and like did great things like in their career and all that. I mean, I'm going to take the work approach to this, first of all. So I'm not going to sure. talk about yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff. It's a completely different answer if you want to talk about like the legacy. I, I have a nine-month-old baby now. So I have completely other goals for how I want to raise my, you know, have a, grow a family with my wife and how I want right. to do all that. But just career-wise, like I think that um, I want to obviously have a successful career and I want to people to think of me as like this guy is a killer sales leader and, you know, did lots of good things. And I want my customers to be able to say that you know, they didn't ever feel like they were being oversold and that they, they have a general good feeling in their, in their gut, right. About the kind of person I was from a sales standpoint. Um, yeah. but I also think more so than that, like I want to be the kind of person that sacrificed my own like relaxation to help others. Because I, I, what I'm trying to do a lot of now is like, I help a lot of people like pivot into software selling that had no background on it. Like, you know, I, I, the other day I was talking to somebody that, um, you know, was uh, like a, a waiter at a restaurant, but he really, really wanted to get into software selling and he was super charismatic. And like, he asked me like, can you teach me how do I do this? Like, how do I get an SDR job? How, how would I even yeah. get started? 
And like, as you know, right, from your experience, this is not a quick conversation. Like this is extremely difficult to explain to someone how they interview, what to say, how to position themselves. But I actually mm-hmm. want that kind of a person to do that. Um, so I've started to think of ways that I can like scale this out. Um, I tried a while ago to do a, um, to do like a course, uh, like a, uh, like I, I forget the platform I was using, but it's like a course where you can come up with like 10, you know, small classes, two minute, three minutes long. Like, okay, here's how you build your resume. Here's the things to put in your resume. Don't just say sure. how to use these tools, but talk about metrics, quantify things. Like here's how many calls I made here, you know, that kind of thing. And yeah. then like another episode, like how to run a first screening call on an, on an interview. Here's how you do like an evaluation interview. Here's how you look for references. And so that's something that I want to be remembered as is like somebody that, um, you know, didn't, I don't want to say forget the little guy. Cause that sounds bad, but like somebody that didn't like tried to hold all the information to myself. I want to actually share that information and make it more accessible for, for everyone. So. Yeah, no, I love that. And that, um, you know, I know impact's probably like a really big thing for you and um, love that you're making that and trying to make that with as many people as you can. Man, where can people connect with you after this um, if they want to connect with you? Uh, I think my LinkedIn would be the, the best place. Um, uh, that is uh, probably like my ultimate social media platform um, that I use. Um, I mean, I, I do have Instagram, so uh, I haven't really done a great job of like keeping up like or or marketing it it's it's really if you just want to see pictures of my baby and stuff like that then you go to my instagram <laughs> but <laughs> that's my linkedin so you can connect with me on linkedin and, and send me messages there um if if you do want to email me um you can email my personal email which is just omjed at omjed.org so it's pretty pretty straightforward um got quite a bit of spam filters on there so i can't guarantee that i'll respond to all those but linkedin is probably the best way to to contact me Cool. I'm Jed. We appreciate you uh, taking the time for everyone out there. You know, you can listen to this on Spotify, Apple Music, <clears throat> YouTube. It's it's all out there. And um, so give us a give us a check out. And this is just another episode of How the Greats Do It.